This is a Goodwill Media podcast. Poverty is something we all understand, um, and I th- and and somehow we've got to get across the message now that just the urgency of it, of dealing with it with the increase in poverty post COVID has got to be a priority for policymakers in our countries. On the tips of development sector tongues throughout 2020 were issues of shifting power, decolonising aid, diversity, localisation and genuine partnership. And at the heart of these debates is an existential question. Whose development interests are we serving? And whilst we tie ourselves up in knots of development jargon, national interest and foreign policy debate, we sometimes overlook the simple and universal shared human experiences of poverty the basic human needs we all have for love, work, family and connection. I'm Bridie Rice, Director at the Australian Council for International Development and your guest host this summer at Goodwill Hunters. And today I'm speaking with Josie Pagani, Director of the Council for International Development in New Zealand. This is the third of a six-part series on development and foreign policy. In our first episode, you heard Richard Maud unpack the role of development in Australian foreign policy. In the second episode, you heard DevEx journo Lisa Cornish explain how the media generates insights and accountability in development. And today, you're going to hear Josie speak bluntly about the differences between the Australian Pacific Step Up and the New Zealand Pacific Reset. Josie and I recorded this episode just prior to Christmas. Josie is always great to speak with. She's a unique combination of political savvy and the ultimate idealist. And we keep off our discussion with the basics. We cover Josie's journey from a small town UK childhood to politics and onwards to aid and development. She talks about her personal campaign to move the development sector away from what she calls the tilted head of compassion and towards a relationship of equals. As with all my guests, we finish with a discussion on what has touched Josie most during COVID-19 and some of her recommendations for summer reading. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the Goodwill Media and Ackford social media channels so you can join in the discussion there. Enjoy the episode and join me next week when I'll be speaking to think tanker extraordinaire Melissa Conley-Tyler. We'll be talking about the role of reason, research and evidence in shaping Australian development. Josie, welcome to Goodwill Hunters' summer series on development and foreign policy. It's great to have you here. Oh, lovely to be here. Josie, you're Director of the Council for International Development in New Zealand. That's a peak body for aid and development. You've also had a stint at the OECD in Paris, founded Progress New Zealand, and you're a regular commentator on global politics, current affairs for radio, television and newspapers. As advocates for improved development, though, our paths have crossed a few times in the last couple of years, and I'm fascinated to understand more about your perspectives from across the ditch on all things development and foreign policy. But before we get into it, let's kick off by telling us a little about some of the early influences in your life. Oh, yeah, that's always quite a hard one to do, isn't it? So I I was thinking about this, and I, I have a political background, so I started off being active in party politics. Uh, I I was born in New Zealand, but I grew up in in the UK. So I was active in the Labour Party in the UK and then back in New Zealand. And I guess, you know, what drives you into politics is often the same thing that drives you into working in in development, aid and development. And I I think that if if I think about, you know, any connection in my career about politics and then working in development, it's really that... um, desire to if somebody once said to me that that people in the Labour Party you used to go into the Labour Party to make your life better off now people go into the Labour Party to make their somebody else's life better off 
And and I think I started with that premise of I'm going into the Labour Party to make my life better off. All the people I grew up with in a very working class village in the UK where, you know, um, the people I grew up with couldn't afford to live in the village anymore after school because it was getting too expensive and, you know, kind of had Londoners moving in and, and um, you know, so I, it felt like I was doing something that was about the people I grew up with and, and the community I lived in. And, and then, you know, when I got involved, I suppose, in aid and development, kind of alongside politics, really, you realise that people get attracted to working in development to make somebody else's life better off. But I feel personally, I, I, I hope I've never lost that sense of it being about uh, making your life better off. Because if you start from there, if you start from thinking, what are the things that matter to me in my family, my friends, my community? You know, it's usually the same things that drive people all over the world. You know, have I got a good job? Am I earning enough? Have my kids got access to education? Am I able to go to a good doctor if, if my family gets sick? So I think that sense of, of trying to keep it grounded in your own values, the own, your own things that drive you, and not making it about a more um, slightly condescending uh, approach to I'm, I'm in aid to make other people's lives better off. I mean, of course we are. But that shouldn't really be what's driving us. It should be more authentic than that. Josie, that's a fresh and quite a grounded take on what we often hear referred to as the compassionate case for why we do aid and development. And it's something I want to come back to later today around your political background and, and how that enables you to engage in those contested spaces of the politics and the policy of aid and development. But Josie, we are here chatting today because of one simple fact, and that is for the first time in a generation, that's over 20 years, the World Bank is predicting a rise in extreme poverty. And this raises a question about the long game for countries like New Zealand and Australia and our relations in the region, a region full of emerging economies. Can you tell me a little about what increased poverty in our neighbourhood means to you? Yeah, um, it's, you know, there's the official definition, isn't there, that we all know. So, so uh, you know, a billion people living in extreme poverty, I, according to the World Bank, living on less than $1.90 per day. Um, it, but there's, of course, you know, that's, that's the bottom billion, what we call the bottom billion. But there are so many uh, millions more people post-COVID who are going to be th- thrust down the ladder uh, close to that to that extreme poverty category, and and that's that's really shocking. I mean, some of the statistics we're seeing, as you said, I mean, for the first time in my working life, we we're seeing an increase in that extreme poverty uh, statistic. I mean, that that's shocking because you know we had we had gotten so good actually at doing something about extreme poverty, and we're very bad at telling that story because. The fact that that poverty, extreme poverty, has declined from about I think forty four percent in in the ni- in the early nineteen eighties to ten percent in about twenty sixteen, uh, or infant mortality declined from forty three percent to just four percent, and that's extraordinarily good news. And it didn't happen because of some natural process. It happened because of civil society, uh, good politicians. Uh, influencing the policy debate and getting good policies and good interventions 
that what that was reducing extreme poverty and now suddenly we're we're back into an increase and i think that you know it, it can't you look back on that and you think god i wish we'd been better at telling the good news story about how how effective we were because now we've got to go oh you know like you know last year we were going in a sort of what I call a kind of urban miserabilism voice. We're going, you know, world's going to hell in a handbasket, climate change, you know, poverty, da, da, da. And now we've got to go, oh, we said it was bad then. Now it's even worse. And, and it's really hard to do that because people just <laughs> not listen to us. So I, I kind of wish we'd gotten better at, at um, telling the good news earlier because now it's really bad and we do have to ramp up our advocacy and our, and our voice to make people aware of that. I think Again, bringing it back to myself, Bridie, where I think, what is it that poverty means to most people? And there's a great quote from a, a former uh, prime minister here in New Zealand from the 50s, Norm Kirk, who said, all Kiwis want is someone to love, somewhere to live, somewhere to work, and something to hope for. And, and the absence of any of that is some form of poverty, isn't it? So, you know, I think that's what I keep in the forefront of my mind is, you know, what does poverty mean for all of us? And, and wherever you are, whether you're in a country where conflict is increasing, and if conflict's increasing, poverty's increasing, um, or in the Pacific where we're seeing, you know, in some places, Cook Islands, for example, where tourism was 70% of GDP, that's just crashed. That's people who've lost jobs, lost livelihoods, who don't necessarily have access to any welfare schemes. So, you know, Poverty is something we all understand, um, and, I th and, and somehow we've got to get across the message now that just the urgency of, it, of dealing with, it, with the increase in poverty post-COVID has got to be a priority for policymakers in our countries. Hmm. In New Zealand, you have had the Pacific reset. In Australia, we've had the Pacific step up. It sounds like a bit of a dance routine. It does. Talk, yeah. <laughs> talk us through the New Zealand motivations for the reset. Well, it, it, Kate was in the last government, so, so we, the last Labour-led government with uh, New Zealand First as a coalition partner and Winston Peters, the leader of New Zealand First, kind of pioneered the Pacific reset. And, you know, some of us have been quite cynical about its impact that, yes, it talked a great talk about increased partnership, increased devolution of decision-making and resources, um, uh, you know, a partnership that meant more than just the donor-recipient partnership, but something that was genuinely looking at uh, locally-led development in the Pacific. So it's all it, it's all great, and we're all really excited about it. And there was an increase in aid, uh, not a huge amount, but it took us up to close to 0.3 uh, of of GNI. So it was a step in the right direction. Um, the, the problem with it, I think, is that not. I've heard Pacific colleagues of mine call it uh, you know, old wine in a new bottle. You know that not enough really changed, and and of course, changes changing that dynamic between donor and recipient, that sort of welfare beneficiary type relationship, is really hard. Uh, and I don't. I, I think there's a lot of good intention. I don't. We, we haven't got there yet. So now we've got a new government. We don't have New Zealand First in government anymore so we don't have the minister that we had in Winston Peters so we've got a new minister Nanaya Mahuta who's the first Māori woman who's minister of foreign affairs um, and of course you know in Māori culture there is a very strong 
sense of genuine partnership with the Pacific. So who knows? It might, it might actually uh, end up being something that, that does deliver, um, but we're, we're still sort of waiting to see. It's certainly all the language around it is right and the intent and the goodwill is there, but we just haven't seen enough substantive change. Mm. Josie, just sticking with that idea of genuine partnership, certainly from afar it looks like one of the distinguishing features of New Zealand international relations is deep cultural integration of New Zealand and, say, Pacific lives. Is that what it feels like on the ground in New Zealand? Yes, definitely. And it's partly that we have such a, a large Pacific diaspora community here in New Zealand. And, you know, uh, we work a lot with uh, Pacific leaders here who are working in the area of health, um, education, uh, economic development, investment. And, I mean, one, one organisation we, we work closely with is, a, is called Pacific Cooperation Foundation. And they're about linking businesses in the Pacific to, to markets in New Zealand and vice versa. And so in the, uh, the way I've heard it described to me, and this makes perfect sense, is that if you, if you are of Pacific descent living in New Zealand, you're a Samoan New Zealander or a Tongan New Zealander. You don't make a distinction between being Samoan and being New Zealand Samoan. You, you're constantly moving, through, not so much in COVID, but you're constantly moving across down these corridors between New Zealand and the Pacific. And so, you know, you're thinking of what we call in New Zealand whanaunga, your, your extended family in the Pacific. Um, you may or may not be related, but there's a sense of, of it being your community still. And so when you think about, you know, Pacific development in New Zealand, you're also thinking of your extended communities and family in the Pacific. So there's not that sort of distinction between, oh, one is uh, um, dealing with poverty in New Zealand and one is dealing with poverty in the Pacific, and that's a foreign affairs aid development relationship. That, that, that sort of um, divide doesn't exist quite so black and white in New Zealand, which is which is what allows us to think a bit differently about how we think of the Pacific, not so much as as a you know foreign affairs relationship, but a little bit more like a kind of EU model, like Pacific Union, um, hmm. like where where we're kind of we're all living in the same region together, and we see ourselves as deeply connected, and we have you know we don't may not have freedom of of movement but it would be great if we did um freedom of movement freedom of capital you know a sense of it of us all being connected so i think that's an easier sell to the new zealand public than it is perhaps to the australian public and so what do these deep connections mean inside of debates around development and foreign policy in new zealand can you give us a flavor of how these conversations play out well it's still there are still structural problems I think or barriers to making it really uh, work and part of the problem I think is that you know in New Zealand we have you know, we've got foreign affairs ministry uh, and then we've got a Pacific people's ministry which its mandate is to deal with Pacific communities in New Zealand but more and more there's a sense of actually you know these two government departments should be far more connected in terms of our work in the Pacific for for exactly the reasons I said, you know, we just see ourselves as part of the Pacific. Um, but I, I do think that it makes it, and, and, and partly having strong connections between Māori and, and Pacific communities, but even Pacific governments, so some iwi, some, some tribal authorities already work in the Pacific, 
and don't necessarily go through government channels at all. So you might have a really big iwi body, which is generating millions of dollars in businesses owned by Māori who are working, for example, in forestry in the Cook Islands and doing it quite seamlessly and doing it in a very Pacific um, uh, way. In it, and it doesn't necessarily require government, um, you know, government controlling it. So, yeah, I mean, I, th I, I do think this, it, it, that, that is much easier in New Zealand. The, the thing I would say is that... Um, perhaps it's made it easier for us in this COVID environment to really focus on listening to what the Pacific is saying and telling us that their priorities are. And I think because the relationship is not defined by um, a kind of what I call a tilted head of compassion, you know, a sort of slightly pitying relationship, it's much more a relationship of equals because, because we feel ourselves to be far more Pacific um, and, and, we know each other really well. So we're kind of going, well, yeah, so what, what do you want? What, what do you need from us now in New Zealand? And I think we're probably, you know, we, we untilt our head a bit more and listen, listen a little bit more as equals perhaps to what, what the priorities are post-COVID. That's a lovely turn of phrase, Josie, a <laughs> tilted head of compassion. I think um, I'm waging war on the tilted head of compassion. That's the one connecting <laughs> theme in my life in politics and, and aid. <laughs> But yes. uh, Josie, you've also always got a, a good campaign at hand, so it's good to know <laughs> that that's the current one. Um, I've got to ask, though, when you look over the ditch at Australian development and foreign policy, what are the what are the things that you see or what are the things that New Zealanders perceive? Well, I, there's always a sense, isn't there, that, um, that New Zealanders are slightly, and I'm not saying this to Skype, but just for the reasons we've just been talking about, that we're, we're a little bit, bit better at going along and just being in a community in the Pacific or, or, or with our partners and, and listening. And I think there's a sense sometimes that um, Australian aid and development, and I'm thinking more of a sort of, you know, government development, that it's, it's very much government to government, as, as ours is too, through foreign affairs officials and ministers and so on, um, and perhaps less of the, of the um, deep community organisations. Although... You know, having said that, we both have, uh, across the ditch, we both have organisations, NGOs and, and members of ACFID and SID uh, who are deeply embedded in communities in the Pacific. And I think both our governments need to realise that those deep community connections, it might be through churches, it might be just through being in those communities for decades, uh, through schooling or through working with kids or, or whatever, that that that's that's really valuable you know we're, we're able to reflect from the bottom up what are the issues that are that people need addressed right now you know what are we hearing what are our what are our partners and colleagues telling us and I think in that sense whether you're in Australia or New Zealand there's a lot that we can you know that, that we can do with our governments to sort of guide them and one of the things that I found with COVID was that we were able to get actually DFAT and NFAT um at the table via Zoom with community leaders in the Pacific. And those community leaders were able to say, actually, you know, some of the money you're giving to government isn't trickling down to our communities. We've got an issue here about our ability to raise our voices to hold our governments accountable or whatever the issue was. They were able to actually say that directly to MFAT or DFAT officials. I think that was a really positive COVID outcome that we mm -hmm. could generate. Agreed. Agreed.
Goodwill Media exists to advance the fight against all forms of poverty globally. We work with leading communications experts from across the Pacific to create localised, culturally informed content that inspires, empowers and drives action. You can work with us to develop and implement a streamlined approach to communications on development projects in Australia, the Pacific and Timor-Leste. And you can trust we'll combine international best practice with unrivalled local knowledge and experience. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, CEO of Goodwill Media. This summer series of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by Goodwill Media because we're passionate about creating really good content based on evidence and experience to help shape the progress and development of our societies. So Josie, we've covered off on some key concepts so far. We've looked at what economic backsliding means in our region and you've divined poverty based on an absence of love, work and hope. Um, we've also looked at New Zealand's engagement in the Pacific Reset and in particular the role of cultural connection and integration. I want us to have a chat about how to influence government development policy. And Josie, you do play a very strong role in the New Zealand scene advocating for better development. Can you just start by giving us a quick 101 on what the Council for International Development, that CID, does on a policy and advocacy front? Yes, that's a curly question, Bridie, because it's always quite controversial, and it should be. Uh, and we get pressure from from some of our members to say, "Hey, you know, you you said should be doing CID should be doing more advocacy, more kind of public advocacy, uh, you know, even sort of running campaigns as such." And and that's a really fair perspective, and one that is very small, we're a much smaller organization obviously than ACFID and and we've agonized over what is the thing that we can do that no one else can do in terms of influencing policy and you know I, I've seen a spectrum which is really useful about you know at the one end the sector can be ignored and and our sector was ignored our NGOs were ignored for about nine years under under national governments that changed towards the end of the government we ended up having a good relationship with um, this National Party, of course, is, is the sort of central right um, party here in New Zealand. And, and it, we managed to get a seat at the table um, with, with um, the, the national government in the end, but it took a long time. So you can either be ignored um, and then you can try and move up that spectrum and get to a point where you're being consulted on policy or decision-making. And where we're trying to get to is not just being consulted and listened to, um, but but actually being part of co-designing, to use that overused word, but part of designing policies, part of feeding into the policy framework before it's sort of fixed in stone. So you're not just consulting us afterwards. And, and so we think that as a small umbrella organisation, what we can do, which is what we do, is we sit across the table from, from a minister and from MFAT officials uh, and, and try and, you know, we're certainly at that consult phase and that listen, listening and having a conversation phase, which is fantastic. We'd like to move it further along. But we have, you know, regular meetings, semi-regular meetings with ministers, with our CEOs and, and us. And, you know, we sit across the table from MFAT and we try and influence as much as we can, uh, uh, you know, where what the Pacific reset should mean. You know, who do you need to listen to to understand what the need is? Um, what should you be prioritising in terms of development issues in, in which countries and so on? So we try and both uh, influence the policy process by sitting across the table from ministers and MFAT, but also amplify the voices 
of the Pacific. So our colleagues in Piango telling us, you know, here are the priorities, digital connectivity, um, uh, you know, support to pivot in communities from tourism to other forms of income and so on. So we can feed that up the chain in terms of talking to ministers and officials. So I think that's our that's the thing we can do that no one else can do in our membership and we try and double down on that. Hmm. Josie, that does remind me of something that Degan Ali said recently to a room full of NGOs from Oceania and and she said, we don't necessarily always need you in our own countries, but my gosh, if you're in countries like Australia, the UK, New Zealand, it is your job to tell the government to step up. And it sounds as though that's that's something that yeah. you're you're taking seriously in in Sid. Um, Josie, something else is resonating with me, and and that certainly when I talk to Pacific leaders about their own development futures, they're they're talking about China, trade, shrinking civic space, and and needing to find new jobs so that they can get health and education for their kids. These are pretty universal issues, as you put it. Yeah. How how are you bringing that Pacific experience? into foreign policy circles in in New Zealand. Yeah, and not just foreign policy circles too. It's also how we're bringing that to our own membership because, you know, what what we're hearing from our Pacific colleagues through Piango and and others is that, you know, top priorities are the same things they are for for us. Jobs, access to jobs, access to uh, getting kids into education. Are my kids going to be able to learn if they can't get to school, if there's a lockdown, um, and, and, and access to health? So, you know, jobs, health, education are the things that concern most people. And then, you know, if you think about that, what we're hearing really clearly is, for God's sake, help us get the digital connectivity up and running fast, you know, because that's how we'll, that's how kids will keep learning. It's how we'll get, you know, find access for new products, uh, find access to markets. It's how we'll even doing teleworking, you know, is a possibility. So, you know, it's partly also, yes, feeding that up to up the chain to, to MFAT officials and, and to ministers, but also our own members who for, for, all, for every good reason are focused on climate change issues in the Pacific and that, and that must continue. But at the same time, you know, our, our historic mission in development is poverty reduction, getting rid of poverty. Um, and so we, while, of course, climate change affects all of those things, jobs, access to health, access to education, what our colleagues are telling us right now in the Pacific is this is this is the absolute priority in 2021 next year is to get this stuff right. You know, get get the digital connections up and running. Help us think through development in each community and what are the possibilities. So we you know we we can't lose focus on that. We can't be talking as if our priorities are slightly different to the priorities of people in the Pacific. We can't be about saying. You know, our job is to make poverty sustainable. You know, we've got to be about making poverty history. It's actually about helping people um, really decide, work out how they are going to stop themselves falling below the poverty line in the Pacific and how they're actually going to um, have a future beyond just tourism. So, you know, we have to be careful. We have to be really careful that we're listening properly, which doesn't mean we don't make climate change an absolute key issue but it does mean we have to do it in language and and, and in priority lists 
that represent the people that we're meant to be working on behalf. Hmm, JC, you've named a, a classic challenge for any advocacy organisation that represents a sector, and that is marrying member priorities with, in this case, the priorities of the Pacific. You've said that, for example, climate change is one area where there might be a short-term conflict in those priorities. When that happens, do you put development first, members second? How does that work for a peak body? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm really challenged by is that we, we seem to sometimes be asking the poorest countries uh, not just in our region, to adopt uh, um, energy sources that that may slow down their development. You know? and, and I'm very aware, as we all should be, that one of the one of the signs of poverty is people who do not have access to cheap, um, abundant forms of energy. So you know, that's a, that's a really difficult thing. I, you know, and it's a huge urgent priority for us to be thinking about what is that, what, what is that cheap abundant source of energy going to be? And are there ways in which, because I don't think in, in the poorest countries, I don't think you can do what, what's called leapfrogging, where you just go straight from burning wood, which, you know, incidentally kills about 1.6 million people every year from pollution, air pollution inside the home. I don't think we can, we, you know, it, it, there's an obscenity about asking the poorest people to kind of, you know, wait till we've got uh, renewables up to a stage where they can be scaled up and supply large abundant sources of energy to those poor communities. Uh, so I think we've got to we've actually got to have that discussion without accusing anybody without accusing each other of not taking climate change seriously. We've got to go. There are trade offs here, um, and we have to be really aware of it. And we have to be guided by what people in those communities are telling us their priorities are right now. And I, and I think it's yeah, it's it's really difficult. But uh, I, I, there's no there's no shortcut to having that conversation. Hmm. And Josie, Sid, like my organisation here in Australia, Ackford, is a peak body for NGOs, but a unique feature down under in places like New Zealand and Australia in aid and development is that there's quite a distinction between NGO business models and for-profit business models also delivering aid and development. Um, you're making moves to include for-profit businesses as associate members of Sid. How's it going? Uh, well, again, it, you know, it's relatively controversial, but, but for the right reasons, because our constitution, just like ACFID's constitution and our, our reason for existing is to, is to, is to be a peak body organisation for aid charities, for, for NGOs, not for profits. And that's in our constitution. So, um, the, the problem with that, and, and then if you start to open up the membership, you know, just without thinking through the consequences, where you start to water down the influence and the impact that the charities have if you suddenly, you know, everybody's joining. So we're really aware of what the trade-offs here are and, and, and what the challenges are. But that doesn't mean, again, that we don't need to have this conversation because, uh, you know, our constitution dates back to the early 80s development has changed so much since then. So there are so many more players in the development space and they are social enterprises, um, they are businesses who, who have a, um, you know, a set of values whereby they, they, you know, part of their whole reason for existing, they want to they work in the Pacific, whether it's 
downers building roads or whatever. They see it as doing their social good. I mean, all sorts of reasons why businesses are getting active in the development space. Our way of thinking about it is not to go, oh, thank you so much, well done for getting involved in this, but to go, if you're involved, we want you in the tent because we want to be influencing you, also learning from you, but we also want to be making sure that you're doing this with a with the bare minimum of code uh, principles in your work, that you're doing no harm, you know, that you're using local labour, that you're going into a community and, and talking to the right people. And you know how to do that. You know how to bring women in. You know how to do, uh, um, you know, set up a project whereby uh, the, the marginalised voices are being heard. All of that is really important. It, we don't have a choice, really, that these organisations are already in developments they're already working in the areas and the countries that we work in so that's been our sort of um, principle about uh, around all of this is that if you're working in the with the people that we're working with and they think you should and they're talking to you and they're working with you we should bring you into our tent but you know we can only do it at this stage as associate members, obviously, because until our membership has ha been able to have that conversation about what does it mean to bring in full profits or social enterprises in as full members, uh, you know, we can't we can't change the constitution. We have to do that together as a whole sector. So, yeah, it's challenging, but we're we're not waiting for that. We are bringing bringing organisations in as associate members, and that's going well. Mm. Josie, that's something that no doubt many of us in Australia will watch with keen interest. We are coming towards the end of today's episode and I just have one or two more questions for you. And the first one is, what fact or headline has touched you most during COVID-19? Uh, uh, yes, that's a good question because there's been so many, haven't there? I think the one that shocked me the most was the number of kids not going to school because of COVID. So there have been various headlines, you know, 1.3 billion children globally not able to access school during COVID. And of course, if you're in a if you're in a poor country where you don't have either digital access or it's just that just becomes we know from Ebola, for example, when the history of Ebola, that when girls stopped attending school because of Ebola, they didn't go back. So that to me is wow, we're looking at generations of um, negative impacts on this uh, post-COVID, which are really frightening. Um, but a couple that, one of the things that I, I'm really pleased about that happened in COVID was that um, we got sick of celebrities telling us, there were lots of headlines about, you know, celebrities. One was <laughs> that I really liked was TV medical dramas donating equipment to hospitals with like, you know, masks and gloves and so on. And you're thinking, what a mad, crazy world we live in where, I don't know, um, Grey's Anatomy is donating masks to a real hospital. But I, I do like the fact that COVID just, we just went, actually, celebrities, shut up for a while. You know, we don't need your moralising. We don't need pictures of Madonna in her rose covered bath with rose petals all over it telling us to just you know um, be mindful uh, we actually just need to fix some of these problems and and name them and, and you guys aren't actually people who could do that for us so I quite liked all that <laughs> and Josie finally what's on your summer reading list that listeners might want to know about uh, um, a lot of trashy novels uh, that will make me not think about anything 
<laughs> because I think we all need uh, everybody saying it, aren't they? We just, we just. I'm actually going to watch wall-to-wall Netflix for days uh, and try not to think of anything. But then, when I've emerged from that um, brain dead phase, I will. Uh, I have actually got on my list a few books. I want to read a book about the American Civil War because um, I think you know America has. We've been watching America for a long time now. It's felt like it's on the brink of another civil war. And I realised I don't fully understand the first civil war. So I'm going to read about American Civil War. Uh, Samantha Power, Education of an Idealist. She's a fantastic woman. You know, she was in the Obama administration pushing uh, uh, um, a lot of the same sort of uh, agendas that we push in terms of uh, support for for people in Syria and, and so on. And she had an aid background. And I like the title, Education of an Idealist, because uh, I think that's basically what I'm trying to do with my life is I'm very idealistic, but I'm also educating myself to be pragmatic and challenge my own assumptions about <laughs> That's a lovely note to finish on. And in fact, in the show notes, I'll pop a, a link to a brilliant podcast I listened to from Sam Power oh, recently great. to complement your recommendation. So on that note, Josie, thank you so much for joining us today on Goodwill Hunters. Always a pleasure to chat with you. And we hope that you enjoy the remainder of your summer. Lovely, Bridie. And I hope everybody has a good break. We all deserve it. And we're all, you know, doing great work. And it's, um, yeah, we deserve to go home and be loved by someone, be in a nice house and come back to a good job after Christmas. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Josie. All right, Bridie. Thank you. 